Warning, this podcast contains historic racist depictions and descriptions of people of Aboriginal, Chinese and African American heritage. Where possible, I have eliminated inappropriate and racist language from quoted material, and the views expressed in these quotes do not reflect my own views or beliefs. In 1850, an Irishman named James Esmond was sailing back to his home in Sydney, New South Wales, from the gold fields of California. He dreamed of returning first class, dressed in silk and velvet, with an overflowing suitcase carried by an attentive valet. But he'd failed to strike it lucky in California and was instead returning to his old life as a contract labourer. While digging post holes on a property in a little town called Bunyong in the Port Phillip district of New South Wales, which was shortly to become the colony of Victoria, he met a man who told him that gold had been discovered on a property in nearby clunes and that the quartz reefs in the area were also likely to be gold-bearing. Having been in California and knowing that quartz often was gold-bearing, Esmond wholeheartedly agreed and immediately set off for clunes. Once there, he saw that the country was much like that which had made men rich beyond their wildest dreams in the United States and hired two local sawyers to dig for him. By the 15th of July, 1850, Esmond's labourers had found a full 14 ounces of gold in the area, the first payable gold in the newly formed colony of Victoria, that is, gold that can be sold on the market. Esmond sold it in Melbourne for approximately 42 pounds, which is around 13,000 Australian dollars today. And the news was reported just days later, and the Victorian gold rush began. Soon, tens of thousands of people from all corners of the earth will be making their way to this new outpost of the mighty British Empire. Melbourne, which then was little more than a city of tents, was full of people determined to try their luck and seek their fortune. Despite their many differences in language, class, skin tone, religion, and just about everything else, people banded together as they headed for the gold fields. These things became immaterial. And this was the land where hard labour was a source of pride and Jack was as good as his master. The land of the fair go, where everyone, especially on the gold fields, was equal. Or were they? I'm Juliana, and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian. Hello, my fellow skeptics. Thank you once again for joining me. Before we dig into the tale of the Australian gold rushes, and yes, I do love a bad pun. Sorry, not sorry. I would like to take a moment to acknowledge that I am podcasting today from the lands of the Wandjeri Watharong people, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to the Indigenous people of all lands where this podcast is being listened to today. Now, no history of Australia would be complete without a discussion of our gold rushes. Gold rushes, and I do specify gold rushes in the plural, happened all over Australia in every state and territory between 1847 and 1893. And they peaked between 1851 to 1860, which was the massive rushes to Victoria, which were sparked by James Esmond's discovery. 
I will also note that gold is still being found in Victoria and often still in these places that were being dug in the 1800s. It is still one of our major exports today. But in this episode, I'm not talking about gold today. Of course, this is the sceptical historian, not the sceptical modernian or whatever that might be. And in this episode, though, I am going to be focusing on the gold fields of Victoria in those dates between 1851 to 1860, with a few forays into the diggings of New South Wales, which were also booming at this time, to examine the idea that these were places where differences just melted away and every person was as good as his neighbour. A classless, colourless, perfectly egalitarian society. But you know that saying about things that are too good to be true? What is true is that people from all over the world really did descend on Victoria in droves starting in 1851. Prior to the discovery of gold, Victoria's white population had hovered around 77,000. If you remember from our last episode, Indigenous people weren't counted in any kind of census anywhere in Australia until 1967. And as far as the settlers and the squatters in Victoria were concerned they may as well not have existed which is horrible but it's worth noting that the actual population at this time would of course have been much higher than that quoted figure of 77,000. The reason that our white population had not yet cracked 100,000 was that getting to Australia in the 1850s was no mean feat. It took months and was incredibly dangerous, not to mention quite expensive, at least in the years before 1851. So while these 77,000 or so came from a variety of classes and backgrounds, the one thing they all shared was a sense of grit and determination to make it in a new land. They ranged from the squatters, who were generally English or Scottish men who had claimed huge tracts of land during or after the frontier wars. So they were some of the earliest white settlers in Victoria and who had become very wealthy off the backs of their huge flocks of sheep or cattle to the rising middle class who ran businesses or worked in the civil service generally to the working class laborers and domestic servants who made up the majority of the population. Because of the expense of coming to Australia, something I'll discuss in a future episode, many of these working class people had come out as assisted immigrants and they worked for either the squatters or the rising middle class. And then gold was found and suddenly labourers and servants were absconding left and right and no amount of threats or reminders that they were legally required to stay at their posts could stop them. And it was no use howling at the police to do something because police were abandoning their posts and heading for the gold fields. And even government workers were handing in their notice and heading off to try their luck. Soldiers deserted. And this was a time when desertion got you 200 lashes and then an execution if you were caught. And ship's captains started anchoring their vessels offshore to prevent their sailors from taking off to the gold fields, but even this didn't stop them. There's a fantastic story in Peter Fitzsimmons' wonderful book, Eureka, the Unfinished Revolution, of a ship's captain who did exactly this to stop his sailors absconding, but they simply lowered a boat and rowed to shore, and there was nothing he could do to stop them. On a side note, his passengers weren't too happy either, as the sailors had taken the only boat, 
and they had to wait for boats to come from the harbour to get them so that they could land themselves. In all, an extra 90,000 people turned up in Victoria alone between 1851 and 1860, most of them heading for the goldfields, and the colony actually found itself floundering. Now, this might not seem like a catastrophe today. You know, before the pandemic, Australia was welcoming more than 500,000 people a year. True, this was spread across the states and territories, but it was mostly concentrated in the big cities of Melbourne and Sydney. But at the time, this was a massive problem. Now, Melbourne in 1851, as mentioned at the top of this episode, was practically a tent city. There was very little infrastructure and no way to cope with such a huge population boom. Victoria had also been a primarily agricultural colony up until this point, and the discovery of gold upset the wealth that the privileged squatters controlled, but there was really no stopping the floods of people heading to Ballarat, Bendigo, Clunes, Castlemaine, Bathurst, and beyond. In attempts to stem the tide, harsh and repressive measures were introduced on the goldfields, aimed at preventing people from going to dig. I probably don't need to tell you these laws didn't work. And really, it was the ultimate in telling someone they can't and then watching them do it anyway. Now, I'm going to take a short break, but don't rush off to the goldfields yet. I've got plenty more to tell you when I get back. Welcome back. I hope you've been able to curb your gold fever long enough to stick around. As I mentioned before the break, the gold fields were seen as a threat to social order. So attempts were made to stop people digging, and this led to abhorrent mismanagement, driven in part by classism and in part by complete ignorance on the part of the ruling classes. Honestly, I could do a whole series, let alone another episode, on the mismanagement of the gold fields, but that's not really what we're here to talk about today. What we are here to talk about is all those people who were arriving in Victoria. They were coming from literally all over the world. Britain, Ireland, France, China, Russia, Italy, Germany, the United States. I could go on. In terms of the various nationalities and ethnic groups all coming together in one place, the goldfields were some of the most multicultural places in the colonies. But did this multiculturalism extend to peace and friendship between races? Were they, as Italian miner Raffaello Carboni described them, a refuge for all the oppressed from all the countries of the earth and a place where men of all nations and colours were equal? Clara Seacamp, the editor of the Ballarat Times in 1855, certainly thought so. Shortly after the Battle of the Eureka Stockade, and the arrest of her husband for writing editorials considered seditious, she wrote an impassioned critique of the colonial government and their insistence on blaming everything on foreigners. She wrote, What is it that constitutes a foreigner? What is this country else than Australia? Is it any more England than it is Ireland or Scotland, France or America, Italy or Germany? Is the population, wealth, intelligence, enterprise, and learning wholly and solely English? We are rather inclined to doubt that it is, and in so far as regards to Victoria, unhesitatingly assert that it is not. No, the population of Australia is not English, but Australian. Anyone who immigrates into this country, no matter from what clime or what people, 
and contributes towards the development of its resources and its wealth is no longer a foreigner, but an Australian. The youngest immigrant is the newest Australian. I won't deny this is a stirring piece, and you'll often find parts of it quoted, even today, by politicians, community leaders, and public interest groups. It was very well received when it was written in Ballarat, at least in spirit, if not in action, as we'll soon hear. But there was outrage and dismissal from much of the establishment outside the diggings. Interestingly, a lot of the criticism of the piece has more to do with sexism, something else that was rife on the goldfields, than any objection to the points that Mrs Seacamp is actually making. A correspondent to the Melbourne newspaper, The Argus, in 1855, wrote of it, I only hope that Sir W.A. Beckett, that is, the judge presiding over Henry Seacamp's trial for sedition, will at once perceive that a lenient sentence upon Mr. Seacamp, and a quick return to his editorial duties, will relieve, at all events, the goldfield of Ballarat from the dangerous influence of a free press petticoat government. One thing that Ballarat and many other goldfields of this time did very well was free press. If you could read, write, and had a predisposition for creativity and flair, you could certainly become a journalist. There were literally dozens of papers circulating on the goldfields. And if you didn't find one prepared to hire you, it wasn't difficult to start your own. And you could write whatever you wanted, like this awful piece which appeared in July of 1854 in the Mount Alexander Mail, which was a popular paper on the goldfields of Castlemaine and shares the views at the time that many white diggers had of the Chinese. The Chinese have rendered themselves obnoxious by their wastefulness of the water and their enroachment on our diggings, doubtless through their ignorance of our language and customs, and the authorities on the diggings should use their utmost exertions to prevent the mischievous and exasperating conduct of these foreigners. In translation, the writer of this piece is annoyed because the Chinese miners in Castlemaine are, in his uninformed opinion, using too much water to wash their gold. And the fact that they were even on the diggings to begin with is frustrating him. That they don't speak English, that they aren't Christians, although some of them were, and don't understand that white British men are supposed to rule over them, is also bothering him. He ends by calling on the Goldfields police, already known for brutal violence and extreme corruption, to stop the Chinese from participating fully in Goldfields' life, and stop them from, well, existing, to be frank. So much for the idea that the youngest immigrant is the newest Australian. If there was a group of people across all the goldfields who were almost universally despised by the European and white American diggers, it was the Chinese. They were seen as unnatural and inhuman, and were sometimes even described as animals and were characterized as lazy, opium adults, predators on the hunt for virtuous European women to steal away and ravage. It was as offensive as it was ridiculous, but... No one ever accused the British Empire of being a welcoming, tolerant, or intelligent institution now, did they? Discrimination against the Chinese came from all sides, from the top of the colonial government right down to the poorest white digger on the goldfields. I'll be getting into some of that right after I come back from this break. Before we go deep into the discrimination experienced by the Chinese on the goldfields, it's important to understand the role they played here. Like Europeans and Americans, the Chinese placed a high value on gold. 
So when it was announced that gold had been found in Australia, they began to make the trip down under. Many Chinese didn't pay for their own passage to Australia, and it was very common for a wealthy nobleman to pay for a large group of his countrymen to go and dig for gold. Whatever they found, they would pull together, and it would be sent back to pay for the cost of their passage. The miners were paid a small wage for their labour, and while the system has uncomfortable echoes of indentured servitude, many men volunteered to go. China was experiencing war and famine in the 1850s, so the chance to find gold in Australia was too good to miss out on. Once they had paid back their passage, they were free to keep anything they found for themselves. And a Chinese miner often planned to spend only a few years in Australia before returning home to his family, hopefully laden with gold. As the Chinese cemeteries at Ballarat, Bendigo and other gold fields attest to, this dream died unfulfilled for many of them. From the moment of their arrival, the Chinese faced serious and systematic discrimination, even before they reached the gold fields. Just to get into Victoria, they had to pay a 10-pound poll tax. That's about $3,000. And many opted instead to go to South Australia and walk 400 kilometres overland to avoid this discriminatory tax. If you're interested in finding out more, I highly recommend visiting the Museum of Chinese Australian History in Melbourne. They have a whole exhibit dedicated to the walk overland from South Australia. Once they reached the gold fields, they were forced to build their camps away from areas claimed by the Europeans and Americans in places selected by the gold fields commissioner and later the Chinese protector, whose job it was to keep the Chinese miners from mixing with the white miners. Usually the places selected for the Chinese to set up their camps were low-lying areas where waste and sewerage would collect when it rained. This was not an accident, and these places were chosen deliberately to try and force the Chinese out of the gold fields. They were also subjected to extra taxes on the base of their race, as the British authorities didn't trust them to keep the peace as they weren't white and Christian. And when local protests over the generally unjust state of taxes on the gold fields did occur, the Chinese, who were paying more to the government than any other group, were deliberately and often violently excluded. They protested themselves often enough, but these were often much more violently repressed than similar protests by white diggers. If the official discrimination wasn't enough, they suffered constant discrimination and harassment from ordinary diggers on the gold fields. Remember that quote from earlier? Well, in that same piece, a member of the meeting in which that digger is complaining that the Chinese exist someone proposes a motion to violently expel the Chinese from the Castlemaine goldfields, drive them off, beat them with whips, throw stones at them. It's, it really beggars belief. His motion was defeated, but this was a common occurrence too, these kind of violent clashes forcing the Chinese off goldfields. And a side note here, Mr. Robert O'Hara Burke, who we met in the very first episode, was a policeman in Castlemaine during one of these riots, and he successfully negotiated with the white diggers to let the Chinese leave the area unaccosted, although he approved of them being thrown out. These anti-Chinese riots were driven not just by race, but also by jealousy over the general success of the Chinese miners and their very effective mining techniques. 
while Europeans and Americans tended to mine individually or in small groups working the same shaft, the Chinese employed a system called paddock mining. Remember, when most Chinese arrived, they were not mining for themselves, but to pay off the men who had sent them to Australia. So anything they found, be it gold dust or gold nuggets, they pulled together to go towards paying down their debts. Paddock mining involved a large group of men all working together across the same area, usually one which had been abandoned by the Europeans or the Americans, and each man had a specific job to do across the paddock, as it was called. One group might be washing the dirt for gold dust, another group's job was to collect the dirt in wheelbarrows from the group who were digging it, and so on. It was astoundingly effective. And the white diggers didn't like it one bit. They decided that gold found in an area they had been mining but had abandoned was their gold. Never mind that they'd given up and gone somewhere else. They'd been there, so it was theirs. And if the Chinese miners didn't hand it over, well, I probably don't have to tell you that assault and robbery in broad daylight were common. The goldfields courts were generally reluctant to act against white miners who attacked Chinese, even in the case of particularly savage assaults, while the authorities jumped quickly on any Chinese person who lashed out at a white man. This kind of behaviour was also encouraged by the governments of the day, who were determined to, and I quote, control the flood of Chinese immigration setting into this colony and effectively prevent the gold fields of Australia from becoming the property of the Emperor of China and the Mongolian and Tatar hordes of Asia. Yuck, first of all. Just yuck. And second of all, egalitarian my foot. No European or American wanted the Chinese to be part of Clara Seacamp's Australia. She probably didn't even want them about herself, to be honest. In fact, when Australia federated in 1901, the heinous and destructive White Australia policy, or technically the Immigration Restriction Act, was passed, which severely limited Chinese immigration to Australia and denied naturalisation to those who had made their lives here. And so the spirit of exclusion towards these people, which started on the goldfields, became official policy. I'm going to take another break here, and when I come back, I want to talk a bit more about the first Australians, our Indigenous people, and how they dealt with the theft of their land and the systemic discrimination from the white settlers who had stolen it. One of the hallmarks of colonisation is systematic attempts to destroy any Indigenous inhabitants of the land and then write a history that suggests they were never there. This was the pattern in Australia, with violent frontier wars, which stretched across much of the late 18th and early 19th centuries, while massacres of our Indigenous people would continue well into the early 20th century, along with the dispossession of their lands and the theft of their children, among other atrocities. Much of what we know about Indigenous Australians during the gold rush comes to us from Ballarat, which is the traditional country of the Wadawurrung and the Jajawurrung people. So I'll be focusing in here for much of this part of the story. Unlike the Europeans, Americans and Chinese, the Indigenous people of Australia didn't place any value on gold. Remember, gold itself has no intrinsic value except what we as a society give it. 
the Indigenous people placed value on other materials, although gold was still respected as part of country. The Ballarat gold fields had originally been part of a large cattle station, which the frustrated squatter had abandoned when floods of diggers descended on his property looking for gold. And while there is no written record of an Indigenous dispersal occurring as this man was setting up his property, it is utterly inconceivable that one didn't occur. The Wadarong and Jajawarong were on the goldfields. Some of them were still living on country. But their oral histories tell of being driven off the land and then having to come back. This strongly suggests they were forced off their country by the squatter. And when he left, they returned only to encounter the diggers. But, of course, this is only part of the story. The Indigenous people weren't merely helpless victims of the white man's greed, as they've often been portrayed. And the gold rush wasn't just something that happened to them. They were active participants on the gold fields in more ways than one. First of all, their goods, especially their warm, waterproof possum skin cloaks, were very much in demand. And they quickly started demanding more than flour and a few packs of sugar in exchange for them. This was much to the annoyance of the diggers who believed the racist garbage that these were not people, but a type of Australian animal. Their knowledge of the land was also highly sought after, as they knew where the ancient creeks had run and where the best gold deposits were. And the diggers would often pay them reasonably well to be shown the best places to dig. However, once they themselves realised that the settlers valued gold, they also mined and sold it themselves, becoming part of the gold rush, often quite successfully given their knowledge of country. The book Black Gold by Fred Cahir has more information on this if you're interested, and I'd highly recommend it. Cahir also points out that despite being valued in some ways by the diggers, the Indigenous community was shunned in many others. It was a classic case of only wanting people around when they were useful. When Indigenous people could show the diggers where to find gold, when they had something to trade, or if they needed someone to help look for a lost child, they were called on. When the diggers did not need them, they wanted them out of the way. And wild stories circulated about mass attacks by Indigenous men on diggers. Or the catch cry white men have used since time immemorial to justify the murder of black men, that Indigenous people were stalking around intending to violate good, innocent British women. Many of these stories are completely fictitious, of course, and at best are exaggerated accounts of arguments between Indigenous Australians and the diggers. But violence against Indigenous people was a real thing on the goldfields. I'm going to quote now from Kahir's book to give you a sense of the kind of violence that was regularly meted out to them and the lack of punishment afforded to the white perpetrators. And I do warn that this account is very disturbing. It comes from the diary of a digger who was in court. A white man had just been sentenced to three months imprisonment for abusing an old native woman. She had been made helplessly drunk and then five men abused her so nearly as to cause her death. She could scarcely crawl into court the next day. This is no uncommon case. I was informed that a native woman died from the abuse she received from a number of white men. Three months. That was the sentence given for someone who participated knowingly and willingly in the violent assault and gang rape of a drunk woman. 
As for the perpetrators who murdered the other Indigenous women mentioned in this passage, it's not known if they were even caught, let alone charged. Sexual abuse of Aboriginal women by white men was rife on the goldfields and very little was done about it by the colonial authorities. When the women themselves or their family members tried to complain about it through the colonial courts, they were often brushed off or dismissed. That case mentioned above where the perpetrator is punished even a little bit is very unusual. And this sometimes led to the Indigenous communities enacting their own justice against the perpetrators. After all, these men were on their land and if their strange courts wouldn't help, they would do something about it. Unfortunately, this was not seen by the colonial authorities as evidence of justice in a highly structured civilization, but instead proof of the wild, vicious and savage nature of the Indigenous people and reprisal attacks were generally sanctioned and justified. Eventually, the Wadawurrung and Jajawurrung people shunned the goldfields and found other ways to keep their culture alive. In 1869, unfortunately, like other Indigenous people, they were forcibly removed from their land by the Aboriginal Protection Act, sometimes called the Half-Caste Act in Victoria. A similar act was passed in New South Wales some years later, which gave the state total control over the lives of Indigenous people and facilitated another century of continuing atrocities. And I need a moment after that. Australia is long overdue for a reckoning with its history on that account. So I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, there's one other group of people that I want to talk about before we close out. As we've seen in discussing the treatment of the Chinese and the Indigenous people, and hinted at in the way Clara Seacamp was treated by the press of her day, the myth of egalitarianism on the goldfields really doesn't stand up to close scrutiny. Egalitarianism was only available to you if you were a white, European, preferably English-speaking man. The other group who got to experience the benefits of Goldfields egalitarianism were white Americans. But there was another group of Americans on the Australian Goldfields who occupied something of a grey area in the social order. African Americans. An important point here. Slavery had finally been outlawed in all reaches of the British Empire and the last slaves freed in 1843. It's another part of history I'll be looking at in a future episode. And less than 10 years later, gold was found in Victoria. So there were people on those gold fields who had lived in a British Empire that allowed slavery. Although unless they had lived in a place like India or the Caribbean, they probably hadn't seen the horrible realities of it for themselves. In America, on the other hand, slavery was still legal during the gold rushes, and it would remain so until after their civil war ended in 1865. Although some states, notably in the north of the US, had already phased out slavery, discrimination and segregation were rife even in the most liberal free states. The passage of the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850 in America as well meant that slaves escaping to free states could be compelled by their masters to return to slavery, even if the laws of the state they were in had outlawed slavery. This meant that many escapees had to look further afield for safety, and Britain and her colonies were a relatively safe bet if you could get there. Britain saw itself as a world leader in ending the heinous practice of slavery, 
But much like many white abolitionists in America, they saw little need to go further than that. Ending slavery meant they were good people, but that didn't mean they had to treat people of color, whether freemen or former slaves, with respect and dignity. Racial abuse was common in the colonies, and black men were routinely referred to by a racial effort that I won't repeat here as a matter of course. Even the newspapers of the day threw this word around freely, as if it was a harmless adjective rather than a filthy slur. The general feeling among white colonists was that men of colour, as they termed them when they weren't throwing slurs around, should be grateful they were living under British law and not enslaved in the United States. Honestly, if the bar for being a good country is one which bans slavery, then that's a low bar to cross, and the colonists really should have found a much better measuring stick than that. We'll never know exactly how many African Americans, free or escaped slaves, came to Victoria to look for gold as they're not frequently recorded. While they do appear often in diaries, letters, and anecdotal accounts of the gold fields, this is probably because they were conspicuous rather than numerous, and they were certainly in a minority. They were not seen as the same kind of black that the Indigenous Australians were, but they weren't quite allowed to participate in white society either. While formal segregation against African Americans was never legal on the gold fields, they were not always welcome in stores or pubs, and establishments owned by white Americans, including a popular bowling alley that was later burned down during a riot, enforced American-style segregation in their businesses. And like any group of people on the goldfields, there are many stories of African-American miners striking it lucky, and even more stories of them failing, like so many others, to find gold and instead turning to another occupation. In Bendigo, three African-American men working together in a deep shaft found a gold nugget so large they had to work together to carry it up. But undoubtedly, the most famous African-American on the goldfields was John Joseph, who was one of the men put on trial for high treason at Eureka. We can actually learn a lot about the views, attitudes, and treatments of African-Americans in Victoria and on the goldfields through the lens of his trial, but one thing that can be said is that they were certainly not seen as being equal with white men. And this was on show at the trial. Joseph's defense team deliberately played to the racist stereotype of the day when addressing the jury and suggested that Joseph, as a black man, was far too stupid and simple to understand what treason was or even to know what he'd been doing in the Eureka Stockade at the time. This could not have been further from the truth. Well, it certainly wasn't treason, but Joseph was a very intelligent man, and he had not blindly wandered into that conflict. He had been an armed and active participant at Eureka. But the defense's strategy appears to have worked. Joseph was acquitted, the first of all 13 diggers actually, tried for high treason to be acquitted. Joseph's views on the strategy of his defense team are not recorded or have been lost to time, and we have little in his own words because if he ever wrote diaries, they haven't survived the intervening years. The final thing I think is important to mention in regards to African Americans on the gold fields is that the European diggers, who would have had little concept of slavery, had a disturbing tendency to romanticize it. 
Joseph denied he was an escaped slave, but he was generally assumed to be one anyway. For those interested, his backstory is unfortunately unclear, but he was likely from either New York, Boston, or Baltimore. He claimed to be from all three of these cities at different times in different tellings of his life, and had probably come to Australia as a sailor on an American merchant ship before heading for the goldfields. New York, Boston, and Baltimore are all port cities, and it was common for ship owners to hire black crew, as at the time it was legal to pay them less. The Europeans also couldn't tell the difference between an African-American and a Jamaican or other West Indian black man, and frequently mixed the two people and places up. In the romantic tellings of the white diggers, however, this didn't matter. And they compared their fight for lower taxes and better treatment on the goldfields, reasonable aims to be sure, to the fight of the slaves of America to be free. When you consider that these people had been born free and remain so in Australia and that none of them knew what slavery was, that's incredibly disturbing. They appropriated one of the grossest human rights violations in history and attached it to a completely different movement. But as we'll see in future episodes, this wasn't uncommon and it wasn't restricted to the goldfields or even Australia either. So back to our original question and back to the claims of Clara Seacamp and Raffaello Caboni that the goldfields were places of complete equality between people. Unfortunately, as we've seen, there's no truth to this assertion whatsoever, unless you were part of that privileged white European male working class group. Like any place where people gather, there were movements towards equality and the goldfields were certainly multicultural, but they were a microcosm of a society that was intrinsically racist, classist and sexist. And this came through time and time again in their treatment of anyone who was not a white European man. While things have changed over the intervening 150 years or so since then, we still have a long way to go before achieving the true egalitarianism of the Australian dream. And that's a dream I think we should all be striving for. Thanks for listening. Next time on The Skeptical Historian, we're hanging around the goldfields to talk about one of the most written about and polarizing events of that boom time, the Eureka Stockade of 1854. I've touched on it before in my teaser, but we're going further into the people, the places, and the reality of what happened on that unseasonably cold December morning when an Australian legend was born. Talk to you next time. The Skeptical Historian is researched, produced, and hosted by me, Juliana Byers. You can find a full list of resources used in researching by going to my website and clicking on Sources. And the bibliography for this episode is available by going to my website and clicking on Gold Fever. You can reach out and get in touch through my website, www.skepticalhistory.com. That's skeptical with a K. Or by searching for me on LinkedIn or Instagram. Sound effects by Adobe Creative Cloud, used under the Adobe Software License Agreement. And Pixabay used under a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Links to all Pixabay sound effects can be found on my website. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic was used under an Epidemic Sound individual license. 
and my podcast hosting is my fuse box. Talk to you next time, skeptics.